You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. As we publish this CyberWire special edition, we're just weeks away from the 2018 midterm elections. And it's not just hype to say this election cycle is particularly hot and contentious. In addition to the amplified partisan posturing, there are lingering concerns about the integrity of the election process itself, the security of the voting machines, and the possibilities that foreign governments might continue the interference they were alleged to have engaged in back in 2016. Kim Zetter is longtime cybersecurity and national security reporter and author of the book Countdown to Zero Day. She joins us to discuss her recent feature for the New York Times Magazine titled The Crisis of Election Security. In it, she explores the structure and fragile integrity of the U.S. election system, how we got to where we are today, and what can be done to reestablish confidence in the system. Stay with us. I've been covering election security going all the way back to 2003. So this is sort of a culmination of all of that reporting. Um, I was really heavily involved in it for a long time between 2003 and around 2008, 2010. And it really sort of fell by the wayside. People weren't really concerned anymore about uh, the voting machines um, because a lot of the places, uh, a lot of jurisdictions around the country had actually started switching to paper ballots or paper trails on um, touchscreen machines. And so there were a lot of people that sort of, uh, you know, thought that, okay, we've solved this problem. I didn't think that we'd solved it, and a lot of people didn't think that we'd solved it. But it went out of favor in terms of the public wasn't thinking about it anymore. And so when the um, Russian interference in the 2016 election um, occurred, it brought uh, this into uh, sharp focus again. And so it was clear the the problem hadn't been solved. I mean, many of us already knew that. But now that there was actually people paying attention to it again, it was time to to raise the issue. And my point with this piece was really to show that the Russians weren't the problem. Um, They're sort of a symptom of the problem uh, and, and sort of an urgency to the problem. But 
it's been a problem going all the way back to um, 2002, um, and it really hasn't been addressed properly. Can you take us through what are some of the challenges that we face when it comes to getting this under control? Well, um, there's really, uh, I guess it's it's sort of multifaceted. Um, you know, securing the machines is sort of the the long um, the long haul way of addressing this. Um, but you're never going to get a machine that's fully secure and, and not hackable. So what you have to do is you have to have a system in place that would help you know in the first place whether or not the software has been altered. And we don't have that right now. Um, we don't have the ability to examine the software at all uh, once it's on machines because it's, it's proprietary software and the voting machine vendors um, have gone to court to prevent anyone from looking at their software. Um, and we don't have sufficient audits in place that would compare, well, we do have paper ballots that would compare the paper ballot against the digital tallies um, to uncover discrepancies. So we've really been um, almost willfully resistant to um, engaging in methods that would actually tell us if there was a problem with our elections. And that's always been very curious to me. If there's almost, there's this, there's a sort of willful resistance to actually taking the steps needed to ensure the integrity of election outcomes. And what do you think's behind that? Why, why do you suppose that is? The voting machine vendors uh, were very resistant and uh, engaged in strong lobbying activities for many years to prevent even uh, the paper trails from being added to paperless machines. It's always been very curious to me um, why they had such an interest in resisting that. Um, but it wasn't just them. Election officials were really swayed by the voting machine vendors. They were really under the thrall of, of voting machine vendors for a long time um, and would follow their lead on many things. And so they sort of um, parroted the arguments of vendors that the paper trails would, uh, it would be more expensive to install printers, that the printers would cause problems at the polls, um, just, uh, you know, it would be inconvenient for disabled voters who couldn't see them. A lot of arguments against that. And election officials were, you know, sort of the driving, uh, for, I guess, the end stop, right? So if, if they decide that they don't want them, it's not going to happen. And a lot of that is because uh, here in the United States, uh, the elections are, are run at the state level. They are not just, no, they, they're actually, they're run at the county level. Mm. So the secretary of state in many cases is sort of the chief election official, but doesn't really have a lot of involvement in the day-to-day um, running of elections. And, and elections don't just happen, you know, when you go to the polls, there's a lot of prep work and a lot of uh, smaller elections that take place throughout the year um, that involve sort of ongoing activity. And secretary of state uh, will be involved in, let's say, setting um, procedures, maybe some protocols. But even that, um, it's sort of high level. And uh, they engage only when, uh, in the past, only when there's been a problem. Um, and so really county uh, officials who are, for the most part, quite often not tech-savvy at all, um, are left, have been left, to make these decisions on their own. And that's how the voting machine vendors have become so influential. And what what led us to this situation? Is is this a, a relic of of uh, how I don't know the, the the growth of our country? What 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 brought us here? 
Well, uh, you know, under the Constitution, the uh, the it's under states' rights and uh, constitutional rights to conduct elections. We don't want the federal government interfering interfering in elections, right? Because then that raises the possibility for um, some kind of real interference. Hmm. And so there's always been this um, uh, pride about in counties running um, elections on their own. Um, but that actually doesn't get us the lack of interference that we think it does because many county election officials um, are very partisan. They've been elected themselves and they are part of a party. And so we've, we've sort of given, in many cases, partisan people control over elections and also um, not had any oversight of, over their day-to-day operations or of the choices that they make and the things that they do. And we really sort of neglected that because we don't really want to know about elections at any time except, you know, the day we go to the polls. It's really, it's a problem uh, with legislators. It's a problem with the public. Um, no one wants to hear about this stuff. Uh, and no one really cares about it until an election year or until a problem rises. They want to think that, the, the you know, they want, it, they want it to be in the hands of someone else. No one wants to really deal with it. And so leading up to the 2016 election, were there people who were sounding the alarms? For a decade. <laughs> yeah. um, well, so specifically about the sounding the alarm around the Russians. I mean, obviously there was DHS was coming out uh, and talking about the probing of voter registration databases. But they were very emphatic that there wasn't any evidence that anyone was targeting voting machines or the election infrastructure aside from those voter registration databases, which is alarming in itself, right? Mm-hmm. But um, not... A, the machinery that is used to tabulate um, or cast ballots. Um, but we all know, uh, you know, people who have been on this beat or overseeing this issue for a decade, that it's not that hard to go from a voter registration system to the systems that are then used to uh, control and, and count ballots. So there were people, obviously, when, when the first hints came out that, Russians were probing even voter registration databases. There were people that knew ultimately what that could mean, but there was there was no time to do anything about it. Now, one of the things that you point out in your piece here is that uh, the security uh, agencies in the U.S. say that there's no evidence that the Russians had changed any votes, but um, you think it's a little more complicated than that. Yes. Yeah, so when they say, um, and, I, and I, I want to point out that they changed even the wording of that, um, right after the 2016 election, they said no one changed any votes. Um, and there was pushback. I, I mean, I engaged in a lot of pushback with the government um, about that kind of definitive statement. And they've altered it and said there's no evidence um, that votes have been changed. Now, um, there are problems with that statement because no one has looked for evidence. <laughs> when the government says that there's no evidence, what they're talking about it's just signals intelligence evidence. So the intelligence community monitors, you know, uh, chatter um, over the waves uh, from, you know, Russian officials and Russian hackers. They monitor machines. They have sensors set up. They're looking for any uh, anything like that. If there are people talking, they're looking for their uh, human sources, intelligence sources. They're looking for any evidence that people have been talking about altering votes or to see if there's any um, kind of chatter online about it. Um, they may even look at to see um, retroactively if they can find any activity going into election networks. 
Um, but it's unclear even if they went that far. Um, so when they are saying there's no evidence, that's the kind of evidence they're talking about. But these machines have been vulnerable for more than a decade. And at any time in that decade, um, anyone could have gotten into these machines. And so when you're talking about looking for evidence, did anyone get into those machines right before 2016, you're missing the entire decade of activity uh, whereby someone may have already gotten into the machines and they have been sitting there for the last decade uh, doing nefarious activity. Unless you actually do forensic investigation of the machines, the voting machines themselves, um, you can't know um, what has been on those machines and whether or not votes have been altered. Uh, the only way that you can even uh, find some suspicion of that, because even if you actually do a forensic examination, if the attackers are uh, really skilled, they're going to erase their tracks on the machine. So you won't find it that way. That's why you need uh, paper ballots and you need mandatory audits to uh, compare uh, the votes on the, the voter-created ballot against the digital ballots. And that's the only way that you'll see um, whether or not there's any evidence that would point to the software. Because you may not, like I said, if you go back into the software, you may not see anything, but you'll see the evidence of it uh, in that comparison if they don't match. Hmm. Why do you suppose Congress doesn't take this more seriously? What's holding them back? Lobbying. So uh, Representative Rush Holt tried multiple times, uh, four or five times, to pass legislation that would mandate paper ballots and to mandate audits. And he was uh, unsuccessful in all of those times in getting any traction to his bill. Um, some people say it's because they were Republican-controlled houses at that time, congressional houses, Senate, and so it was hard to get any leverage there. But even when it looked like there was, you know, a lot of Democrat interest, it didn't actually go far enough. Um, in, yes, you point, I, or I point out in the story, in the New York Times story, where I interviewed Steny Hoyer from Massachusetts, and he was the architect of the legislation that got us these voting machines. And he said, I asked him why, once you became aware, or once the public became aware, that there were problems with these machines, and Rush Holt brought up the legislation again to ensure the integrity of ballots um, by mandating audits and paper trails, you still didn't uh, pick that up and vote for it. And he said he just didn't believe Rush Holt, that this was a problem. He believed that the machines um, had integrity. And it really is that the, you know, we have a case of lawmakers who don't understand technology. And so they're really at the mercy of whatever the tech companies uh, the voting machine companies in this case tell them and they don't seem they they seem to be very out of touch with anything that happens outside of the beltway so while everyone outside of the beltway including academics and computer scientists actually actually even in the beltway computer scientists in maryland and the dc were trying to point out problems um they just weren't listening to them yeah it's really striking to me that that something so crucial to the foundations of democracy as our ability to have confidence in our elections uh, is is basically under the control of private for-profit companies who aren't really allowing us to take a look at what's going on under the hood. Right. And I, but there's just been no impetus for forcing that on them. Um, like I say, the election officials for a long time really trusted vendors and they were also, you know, they had good lobbyists. So even among federal lawmakers, it was hard to get any traction on any of this. 
Now, you know, leading up to the 2016 election, we had uh, then-candidate Trump, who was sort of sowing the seeds of doubt when it came to the election integrity. He was leading up to election day. He was saying that the election is a, is a sham. It's a scam. Um, we have other observers saying that the Russians uh, feel it isn't necessary to sway the outcome, but just to shake our confidence in our democratic norms. Um, how much confidence do voters have these days? Have they, have, has that, uh, that shakeup been successful? Yeah, I mean, so that's the difficulty here is that you're, um, we've never had a situation like this, right? Where a president going into the election himself was already uh, questioning the integrity of the outcome of the election. And then after the election, of course, we're looking at the prospect, well, if the Russians actually did accomplish some of this, um, then that was their goal and they achieved it, right? They've raised questions. And so now anyone who tries to um, shine a light on this then uh, can be accused of aiding the Russians. So you're you don't win either way right you're trying to actually secure elections but now you become an enemy of democracy if you're actually in trying to secure elections against the russians you now become an aid of the russians by sowing doubt in the outcomes um and that's we've never had that situation before in you know in the many years that i've been covering this Mm. um so this is a new sort of wrench thrown in and it's a difficult wrench but I think that it was it, uh, we've overcome that. I think that um, election officials have sort of embraced um, some assistance from DHS. They've accepted that they need to become more security uh, conscious um, and raise their security profile. So I think that even though there are still some people that say, "Hey, don't talk about this. You're you're helping the Russians," uh, there are many more that say, uh, "You know, no, we need to actually address this." So where do we stand now? We're heading into the 2018 midterms. Has there been any meaningful change? Are things the same as they've been? Is has the having a light shown on this? Has that uh, has that made anything better? It's definitely made election officials more, um, let's say, open and cooperative about seeking assistance. Um, in the past, the election officials really haven't been able to, first of all, they didn't have the will to go look for assistance, but they also had a resources problem and that they don't have money to actually hire uh, security staff on their own. So having uh, assistance offered by DHS has really improved things and it's improved the awareness and it's improved the willingness. But what DHS can do is very limited. Um, what they are doing is they're scanning internet-facing systems. So like the voter, the voter registration um, database, the server, anything connected online, they can do a remote scan of that to see if there are any unpatched software holes in that um, database software or the server software, and they can help officials get that patched. But that's a very, very small part of the election infrastructure. And most of the infrastructure is not supposed to be connected to the internet, and it's not in a, in a position of being scanned. Um, and yet it is just as vulnerable. What would you like to see going forward? Are, are there any solutions available to improve, uh, improve the situation that, that have any hope of, of being pushed through? Mandatory audits and, and paper ballots. That is, I, if, if we can do anything um, that would, uh, you know, it's very hard to get security right. Um, security is a huge uphill battle. Even when you think that you've secured your system, any change that you make to your system afterwards can introduce new vulnerabilities. So you can't rely on getting the tech so secure that no one will ever be able to change anything. 
And also, you're, you're, we're dealing here with an insider threat, right? We're not just dealing with Russians who we have to look at coming from the outside over the Internet. Um, voting machines are also vulnerable to being um, manipulated by a trusted insider. Mm. And so you can't just you can't necessarily defend against that by doing the tech. That's why you have to um, implement something after the fact to do some verification. And if you have um, audits, uh, and I mean, they have to be well-designed audits, um, risk-limiting audits is the kind of audit that, that states and counties want to be doing. And there's only one state now that currently does that. So you want to have paper ballots created by the, the voter, not a, not a paper ballot that's produced by a machine, but the paper ballot that's created by the voter. Then you can scan it and you can count the digital um, votes taken from that ballot But you need to actually look at that paper ballot and you need to do a mandatory audit. And that's really the only hope that we have of knowing when the election has been manipulated and trusting that it hasn't. Our thanks to Kim Zetter for joining us. The title of the article is The Crisis of Election Security. She's also the author of the book Countdown to Zero Day. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technology. Our CyberWire editor is John Petrick, social media editor Jennifer Ivan, technical editor Chris Russell, executive editor Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business.